You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea, and I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm coming to you this week, actually, from Oldborough down in Suffolk. And as I'm staying in a small cottage down here, I don't have my usual podcasting equipment. So apologies if the sound isn't quite as clear as usual. Our absolutely wonderful sound engineer, Justin Ward, will work his magic. So I'm sure it will be bad quality, but might not be quite as tip top as usual. My guests this week are Nick Cano and Zara Kay. Um, Zara is an ex-Muslim activist, um, a secular activist working for women's rights, particularly the rights of women who have left Islam. And uh, she is the founder of the organization Faithless Hijabi. And Nick is the secretary of the organization Faithless Hijabi. Thank you both for joining me today. Let's begin maybe by talking a little bit about, uh, Zara, your background and upbringing. So you grew up in Tanzania, I gather, as part of the minority Koja Shia community. Can you tell me more about that, about your ethnicity and background and about that community? And what, what circumstances were like for you when you were growing up? Yeah, well... um I only recently figured out what my ethnic background was only because we've never had to know where we were from because there were people who looked like us and there were three different major races and a lot of other minorities. But initially we would just, you know, cluster people like me as Indians and then there were black people, so African or like, you know, African ethnicity and then there were Arabs. Um but until recently, Ancestry.com said I am mostly Afghan and then 20% West Indian and like 7% um, from the Bantu tribe in East Africa. So that's the ethnic background. However, I was born and raised in Tanzania and, you know, having a Kenyan parent as well. My mom's Kenyan. We've been there for generations. Um, so the community has lasted for quite a while and has spread out across um, different regions, including Australia, um, the UK and um, the Americas uh, with the, some parts in the Middle East. And I think growing up, I always thought until the recent incident in Tanzania that we were quite liberal or that, you know, we were a bit, um, we were less strict as, you know, when we talk about the Salafi and Wahhabi and the Saudi Arabians, we always thought they were so radical. So I guess I, until, until very recently, I didn't realize I was actually from a cult. And I think growing up, I, my family was, I would say relatively conservative or relatively moderate, depends what angle you're looking at. So I did have to wear a hijab as part of the norm. And yeah, and I think my parents aren't um, that strict. My parents weren't that strict about a lot of different things. And um, I think, like, sorry, I just got interrupted by your voice. <laughs> uh, so I lost oh, my train yes. of thought. <laughs> yeah, sorry. My, my boyfriend was asking if I wanted some tea. Uh, so I said no. <laughs> but but the podcast is called Two for Tea. Yes, I do have tea here. And you do realize that it's mandatory to drink tea whilst you're on this podcast. I should have explained this earlier. Um, we do this on the honor system. So I just trust that you are drinking tea. Mm-hmm. Does coffee count? Uh, somehow we're, we're breaking up, Nick. I, I, I couldn't hear that part. Anyway, carry on, Sarah. 
Yeah, no, all good. Um, yeah, so I guess um, in my defense, I always thought we were quite moderate because of the way I was personally raised, not the community as a whole. Um, and I think I am one of the very few ex-Muslims, and it's a growing number, which is great, that have a good or working relationship with their families. I'm meant to consider myself lucky, but I feel like this should be the norm. So that's a, a hard pill to swallow. But um, yeah, growing up in Tanzania was interesting because while you're still in like an African national, like an African national, you don't always integrate with the local. Like you were just part of your own community and you went to the community school. There were some other private schools that you could go to or international schools, but it was largely just very community-based. So all your friends were from the community. And if you wanted to do sleepovers or hang out with anyone who wasn't from your community, that would be really hard. Obviously that's changing a little, but for me, that was my whole world. And I left mm. when I was 16. So mm. that that was a bit about, I guess, the community I'm from in Tanzania. Um, so I heard you say on another interview that there is a strong connection between the Koja Shia and political and cultural developments in Iran. Um, oh, absolutely. We're like Iran and parts of Iraq as well, Karbala, anything that has to do with Shiism, we're like very, very bonded with them. So, you know, we would go for pilgrimage to Iran or kid, parents would send their kids for further studies in Iran and you'd, you'd learn more about Islam or like a, like more on Islamic law, but also learn Farsi, apparently, while you're not even Persian. You don't even have a Persian background. Mm. And you said that you didn't grow up speaking Swahili. You're not an absolutely fluent Swahili speaker? I am personally not, but neither do I speak my own, um, what is supposed to be my mother tongue fluently, only because I grew up, my first language is actually English. So my parents started talking to me in English. And, and you went to English medium school? Yes. So we, like all of us, including my parents, um, went to English private schools and we didn't read my, my dad and my brother. And I think some of my siblings are uh, a bit fluent in Swahili, but it would mostly be my dad and my brother only because they work uh, with a lot of, um, and they have a lot of African clients. And I guess business lingo is quite different from you speaking or trying to do your Swahili exams in school. Mm, uh, yes. So did you, so when you were growing up, you were mostly within the community. You mostly knew and socialized with um, other Indians um, or other other Indian Muslims? Um, yeah, I, other Indian people, other people from the community. And there were mm -hmm. only the same ethnicity or similar ethnic backgrounds of people who you would know from the mosque. Um, mm. There were some Arabs, but if there were Sunnis, we'd kind of keep our distance, would never really go to their place as much. But a lot of the times it was mostly just people who you knew, whose parents knew your parents. And, you know, you had to kind of like verify if their family is a good family um, based on how often they go to the mosque. And my dad was one of the ones who served the mosque for a very long time. Mm. He's a chef. Right. So. Oh, right. Yes. So it was sort of a. a so he cooked for the mosque? Yeah, um, as a hobby, actually. Uh, not as a, he's a chef by profession, but he cooked for the mosque as a hobby um, while running his business or trying to juggle the both. So it was really, you grew up in a, in quite a, in a, in a sort of quite separate um, parallel community. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't know what African music was like or African culture. We knew bits of street food, which was common, but I'd never taken public transport apart from taxis in my life. I still haven't. Trains and buses, you'd never go there if you were lighter skinned because the idea is that you'd get robbed, harassed, or you just don't do it. So I'd never done it. Um, and Tanzania being a developing country, I can't say we have the best of roads or um, very developed bus and train lines. Definitely getting there. Um, but yeah, we lived quite segregated. 
um, especially if you're not in the working or business environment. Mm. And yeah, so I think a lot of times you just like all your friends are from the community, all your, um, I guess, people you meet at school and then Saturday school, which was Islamic school, is from the community. And we rarely get to hang out with other people. I mean, I was just tweeting like about an hour ago how we weren't allowed to eat f- the food of non-Muslims or specifically people who weren't Christian or Jews or Muslims because that's the rule that we were following as part of following a scholar from the community. So mm. we were very limited in the restaurants we could go as well. Right. So it was very, it was quite a separatist, quite a separatist community. When did you decide that you wanted to break away from that? When and why did you decide to move to Australia? How did that happen? So I initially had moved to Malaysia before I moved to Australia. And I was about 12 to 13. I knew that I needed to get out. I was like, I cannot imagine my future being here. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but the more books I read, the more I was interested in pursuing uh, higher education. And because none of my siblings had ever gone to universities, I wanted to be the first. So at 14, I applied for college and left as like a month after I turned 16 and moved to Malaysia. And I think when I did move to Malaysia was the first time that I actually had befriended a lot of different nationalities, but even people from different ethnic backgrounds, or even just know that you can be a Muslim and not wear a hijab. I had no idea you could do that. Call it ignorant or, um, I guess, being so sheltered in that bubble. But all I had known was when you're a Muslim, you grow up, you turn nine, you wear a hijab for your entire life. That's it. Um, I had only one cousin who didn't wear it and I thought she wasn't a Muslim or I didn't even know apostasy at the time. I didn't even know you could leave. I mean, to be fair, it was only 2017 that I actually found out about ex-Muslims and I realized how much we had in common. The other times, it was just my thoughts to myself Mm. while I was progressive. It was just like, you know, but I'm still a Muslim. So I kind of need I needed to hold myself back so that I wasn't sinning, even though I wasn't praying after like the age of 14, 15 as like a daily prayer. It was always occasional. But I think my faith in coming out of uh, like my losing my faith, but also like just coming out of that bubble started from a very young age. I think I always just wanted to know more because it was such a small circle of things that I was exposed to. I didn't know what homosexuality was until I met a guy who was flamboyant and I was, you know, a bit surprised. I was like, oh, okay, you're gay, like you're with a guy. And I'm like, cool. It doesn't bother me. And as I as years grew past and I see a lot of homophobia, Islamic homophobia, and I'm like, why do you guys care? Like I can understand that Islam doesn't want you to support them, but why are you hateful? And, you know, had an argument. My first argument with my brother was at the age of like, I think, 20 or 21. And it was over homophobia where he was freaked out about his friend being gay and he didn't know how to react. And he decided he'd just not talk to him. Not that they were best friends, but it was just, you know, it was, I couldn't conceive that, you know, my brother would just stop being friends with somebody who is gay but then my brother has never lived overseas he's never met a lot of gay never met anyone gay that was his that was the first time that he had met someone who was gay um and you know his understanding as well as mine was quite limited because we lived in Tanzania Mm. so from from Malaysia you applied to university in Australia and then you went to university in Australia is that that was that the next stage um, yeah, so I started my university in Malaysia, studying for an Australian institute, and then I transferred midway. So I completed my bachelor's and my master's in Australia, in Melbourne, um, and then moved around to Sydney for a job. 
Um, but I think the biggest cultural shock was that when I was in Malaysia and getting to know a lot of people because I lived in an area that had more international students than locals. So everybody spoke English and it wasn't that hard um, to, I guess, get by. But also I think it was it was just being outside that shelter or the bubble that I had known and to figure things out on my own and making new friends and, you know, talking like talking to a guy without guilt. Because in Tanzania, if somebody saw you talking to a guy, that's it. Your reputation's over. Like you're a slut. The, the guy has obviously no repercussions. And my family weren't that harsh. So they, they were just like, let them talk. But, you know, in general, it was quite difficult even just having a male friend or even just saying hi to somebody. Because when I had extra... um extra tuitions the girls and the boys were separated and if I talk to somebody the next thing I know my reputation's over um and it was it was daunting because that was you know that was so confusing for me like I was being sexualized but I had not confronted it that way as well mm. and mm. it was only later on where I realized how I was being held to that standard that was so different for men while my family never imposed it, it was the larger community, which I think says a lot about why I have I even have a relationship with my family, and that mm. how we most largely ignored a lot of um, the talk or the extremism. Like me going to Tanzania, you know, I had my brother's friends telling him he couldn't sit on the same sofa if I sat there because I'm not a Muslim or I don't believe in God, and that I am impure. Or he couldn't eat the food that I cook. And some people telling my dad that, you know, Muhammad said that you need to love him more than your own family. So you can't talk to your daughter. And my dad was so confused because these were ideas we never really grew up with. Apostasy law, like my family had no idea about it. They never thought like, you know, apostasy laws existed or maybe they never verbalized it or I never, we never even thought about all of it. Um, so it was tricky because I, I didn't necessarily face, uh, the same consequences as other ex-Muslims from their families. Yes, but you are, you're very familiar with the kinds of con social consequences that can be. And maybe that's a good place to segue into talking a little bit about, uh, what happened when you recently, when you returned to Tanzania. Can I just preface this by saying, so I know it's a rather complicated, story and also there's been a lot of kind of gossip about it within the ex among other kind of ex-Muslim YouTubers and things uh, with most of whom I imagine my listeners will not be familiar so I think we don't even need to touch upon that necessarily sure. um, what I what I do know is that um, what I gather is that um, if I can give a little summary of what, what I've understood, and then I'll let you sort of take it from there. Um, so it began, um, you actually received some some rather creepy uh, phone messages from a guy who turned out to be a police officer. That in itself is quite, quite shocking. And then your brother was... Uh, initially your brother and then you were hauled in for questioning at the police station and the the official charges were something quite different and didn't even you know wouldn't even make sense to a westerner it had to do with not having relinquished your passport or having used the wrong sim card i mean there were some kind of really ridiculous and strange charges but once you were in um once you were in the examination room, they started asking you about your Facebook posts critical of the president and Facebook posts critical uh, in support of homosexuality and critical of Islam. So do you want to talk, tell us a little bit about what, what happened there? What went yeah, on? you've, you've, you've accurately captured most details. Um, 
basically I was stalked and I didn't realize this at first because I just had, I was working with organized orphanages there and other smaller organizations, which we've now established a program, the menstrual health program. Um, but I was working with a lot of different uh, schools, orphanages and um schools uh, like disability schools on donations which was really like my final posts as well before I was arrested and it was really shocking and somebody messages me and he's like you gave me your number last week and I'm like I can't remember giving anybody my number because I didn't go out last week and you know usually I, I I try giving them email but you know may I may have given someone my number and I'm like who are you can you send me a photo? Sends me a photo. And I'm like, I don't know who you are because I would remember. And I'm like, stop harassing me. And he deletes the photo because WhatsApp has a delete function. And then he goes like, no, I just want to meet you. You'll see I'm a nice person, attempts to flirt. And I'm like, can you not? Like, can you just stop harassing me? No means no. And then it ends very strangely because he says, I will see you again, Zara. We will meet. Something around that. And I was like, such a creepy person. So I told my brother that someone's harassing me on my Tanzanian number. Um, and he's like, you know, my brother being my brother, he's like, oh, I'll call and check who it is. And he calls the person and it's registered under, so you have true callers. So you see the name that pops up and a woman picks up and the woman's like, who is Jackson? And, you know, the woman's like, He's my brother. No, sorry. My brother's like, who is Jackson? And the woman says, he's my brother. And he's like, can you tell him not to harass my sister? And the call is over by then. Over two weeks later, my brother gets a call on Christmas Day. And, like, and apparently the cyber crime unit calls him. And we were like trying to brainstorm, like, why would you get a call from cyber crime and not tell you what it's about? Or if they knew who you are, they would have known your address and served you with a summon, not just call you on a public holiday. And we called a lawyer, got it extended to like the 28th, which was a Monday. I stayed in the car and he went in and basically they took his phone. They showed him my profile and they're like, we want her. Who is she to you? And my brother's like, that's my sister. And he's like, this is about her. She needs to come in. And my brother calls me and he speaks in a strange tone and he talks to me in English, which is like, okay, we don't talk English to each other on the phone. So, you know, what's happening? And I can hear background noises like, you know, that he's on loudspeaker and he's like, you need to come in. And I'm like, now? And he's like, yeah, this is about you. And I'm like, what about me? He's like, they won't tell me. You just need to come in now. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm in the car and I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like if I go in and something happens to both of us, nobody knows where we are. So I attempt to text three of my friends, um, one of them living in the Middle East because I was actually talking to um, her at the time. Um, and one of them in Tanzania and uh, my boyfriend in the UK. And I'm like, if I don't come out in three hours, just alert people. And nobody heard from me for 72 hours. And, you know, I was trying to think what, you know, why am I being called for cybercrime unit? And I remembered that I'd gotten a lot of threats when I posted up that photo of two men kissing in front of the Kaaba, the photoshopped one. And I was absolutely getting hammered with threats. We'll put a link to that. Uh, that's a Facebook post of yours. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it was about two men, photoshopped photo of two men kissing in front of the Kaaba. And I just get hammered and spammed with like a lot of death threats. And, you know, I was like, well, this is the usual and technically, I'm not breaking any law because Tanzania doesn't have blasphemy law. But then I'm like, but somebody may have reported it. Not that it's an actual charge. It could have been reported. And that's exactly what my tweet said. I said, going to the police station, someone may have reported my blasphemous post. Um, and that was it. And nobody had heard from me. And Nick, I'm not sure how you came to know about it because I didn't yeah. tell you. Yeah, the how I came in was I was just... Um just before bed, I thought, I'll have a quick scroll through Twitter. And then I saw that tweet and thought, oh, shit. Um, and, yeah, so we basically, um, a large number of us formed a group um, and connected basically overnight and just tried to start making some noise. Uh, but, yeah, because we hadn't heard from Zara in a couple of hours. And we're obviously very, very concerned. Like, 
I personally wasn't that familiar with the fact that there wasn't a blasphemy law in Tanzania, but in that part of the world, anything to do with potentially blasphemy, you want to take very seriously. Um, so, yeah, we just started making as much noise as we could. Uh, we wanted to keep Zara in the spotlight. So then uh, Tanzania knew that, you know, they were, you know, if the world was watching and then they, you know, doing something to Zara would be a very bad idea. So the threat was to imprison you yeah. um, on, on some other pretext, but actually because of this Facebook post. So prior to this Facebook post, and I've, I actually made a video about it, linking all the evidence I had from before. Prior to the Facebook post, because obviously the police contacted me before the Facebook post, but I didn't put the two together until later on because my brother found out that that number belonged to the police because he, the police actually told him that I was trying to look for your sister. Um, so we knew that it was premeditated. And basically, before the Facebook post, I had on some Tanzanian groups and private groups that I wasn't a part of, um, people started making posts about me because they saw me in Tanzania. And, you know, they put all my blasphemous posts and whatnot together, like a collaboration of screenshots and they're like this woman is in Tanzania and she's you know she's being blasphemous she's not a Muslim and she left Islam and now she talks about Islam we need to do something about it we cannot say silent she's in our country and that triggered a lot of people's reaction because prior to that I hadn't visited Tanzania for years and I went back for a family emergency so you know Things seemed safe at the time, and I was there for a few months, um, supporting my family through what was some very what was a very difficult time. And um, all these posts came in, and some people started commenting, and they're like, "Well, she doesn't like the president, and she's critical of COVID nineteen and his handling." And you know, they're like, "You know, JPM, so uh, John Pompe Magfuli, the the former dead president now." Uh, so the former president, um, JPM, and they t- they went like, oh, we need to, JPM must do something about this. We need to inform the police and whatnot. A couple of days later, the post was taken down because my friend sent me screenshots and some people contacted the group admin and said, this is a malicious post. This is like targeting her. And they took it down. But I had those screenshots. I didn't put the two together until I was finally like, when I went in the room, they're like, we need your phone. So just before I t- they took my phone, I hit twit, uh, like tweet, and they took my phone. And that was the last time I saw my phone until like February, I think. But I, so they, they were my- investigating. So they were tipped off by people in a Facebook group and began investigating your social media and they knew about you because of the faithless hijabi organization that was why you were a prominent public figure they had no idea who i was they were told this is her profile these are her posts here's the money you just need to arrest her for two nights and that's it or a week or whatever and that's it and the only reason i know this now was because uh, when I got out and my passport was stolen and I talked to them and I was going to tell the media about it, um, one of the police officers actually told my brother about who had done this because his job was on the line. So they were bribed to keep you in custody for a certain amount of time as a kind of warning to sort of... Yeah, to it was, it was to scare me. It was definitely to mm-hmm. scare me because it wasn't a surprise that they were trying to do this for a long time. Like this was pre- like a police contacted me weeks before and they just didn't know how to get me. They didn't know who I was, the number. It was my sister's number, but it, it, there is no crime against it because I, I, I actually asked them, show me the law. And they took my lawyer's phone in the room, in the interrogation room. They literally took my lawyer's phone um, because I asked him to Google it because he's my lawyer and he has to kind of show me the law because that's what you do. Like, you know, you go on your phone and they took his phone. Um, So when, you know, when I initially went in the room, they're like, Zara. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, so what is your legal name? 
And where is your Tanzanian ID card? And I'm like, what? I am not Tanzanian. And they're like, how are you not Tanzanian? Your whole family is Tanzanian. Like your brother's Tanzanian. And I'm like, I'm not Tanzanian. And they're like, what are you then? So at this point, they had no idea what my legal name is. They don't know what passport I hold. They they don't know anything else about my, my life as such. They were just given the money to do a job. And what really scared them was when they took down my details, I told my brother, hey, you need to call the Australian consulate because when that, po- when that social media post went up, the first thing I did was contact the Australian consulate in October because um, I was like, something feels fishy, but I just want to be on the safe side. And it was a friend who encouraged me to do that. And she was like, Sarah, I think you should contact and get out of there soon. And I'm like, I honestly, if I could, I would. I just cannot get out right now. You went back in October. I went so, back in September. Mm-hmm. And in then, September. Okay. So you were there for quite a long period before this, before the yeah. arrest. So okay. I was there for just under three months or no, just above three months. And Every month I had to renew my Tanzanian visa on my Australian passport. So the whole charges about her having a dual citizenship was invalid because I didn't have a dual citizenship. What I understood is that the police retained your Australian passport so yeah. that you were unable to leave the country. Yes. So even after you were out on bail, you were still unable to leave the country. Um, and did they eventually, did you eventually get your passport back? Your Australian no. passport? No, no, they threatened my sister to bring that passport to the police um, and they kept it. And then five days after my arrest, it was lost, but my lawyer failed to inform me. So how did you finally manage to make it back to Australia? Um, we applied for an emergency passport and Australia wasn't willing to provide any support until we hired Dowdy Street lawyers. Um, who were based in Australia and the UK, and they had a meeting with um, Marissa Payne, who is the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs. And it was until the, the new lawyers got in and had a meeting with them, they never provided any form of support. They denied me a passport because they said, we don't know if your charges have been dropped. And I'm like, if you find out what I'm charged for, let me know because I don't have a charge sheet. I never went to court. They have given me no evidence of them arresting me. But and because the Australian I government spoke, just wasn't helpful at all. Yeah. Mm. And because I spoke to the media, so I was arrested on the 28th and the media news came out on the 3rd. Um, so the second in Tanzania, so the third in Australia, and it was still kind of second in Tanzania, time difference. On the third morning was when they put a travel ban on my, on my Australian passport. And I only found that out when I was trying to leave because I was detained again in February. So despite my charges being dropped, the police didn't do their due diligence and clear my name off the fly list until the Australian consulate had to, like I was on the phone with the Australian consulate in the airport and I'm like, you have to talk to them. And they're like, well, we can't really talk to them because we're not authorized to do that. And the Tanzanian government, like the Tanzanian police just wouldn't take that phone call. It was literally on loudspeaker. They're like, we're not talking to anybody. They're like, we're not other. They're like, we're not going to talk to anybody. They can do. I, I have a video that I haven't uploaded, but I have a video of when I was at the airport trying to leave the first time in February after having my emergency passport. And the person was like, I'm taking this passport away because she's not allowed to fly. And my brother's like, "That's you can't do that. That's not the law, because at that point, we knew that nobody except me could have the passport unless my crimes were like murder or tax fraud or something quite big. Um, and the police at the airport, and not to confuse everybody, but the police at the airport was... Um, you know, he's like, who do you think you are? You can't talk to the police like that. You can't refuse them the law. I will not only imprison you, but I'll imprison your family. And we were like, what the fuck? And I had it all on camera, but I didn't upload it because it still has faces. Um, and it's in Swahili. So that. 
So the, it's it's quite a frightening story because basically, because of your social media posts, critical of the then president and also uh, critical of Islam and in support of homosexuality, you were subject to a whispering campaign. You were harassed by the police. You were wrongly arrested, um, and you were placed on a no. Your passport was taken away. You were placed on a no-fly list, and your family was threatened. And eventually, you managed to get the Australian government to help you, but they were quite reluctant to intervene. Um, and so clearly, there is, even though there is no law against making specific Facebook posts that it's there is obviously a, a, a danger um, in speaking out in that country where there's a lot of corruption am- among the police and in which many people are highly offended and very motivated to punish um, to punish people for speaking out. Oh, absolutely. I don't know how many of your audiences know about Tanzanian activists, but most of them live in fear and have been arbitrary detained, even even on just um even on just being part of a political party, they've just been detained. And then no charges at all. They're released after eight days. Nobody know it's basically to scare them. A lot of people like while my charges were based on a bribe, it's not unheard of that a lot of people in Tanzania have been arrested without any official convictions. Mm. And mm. corruption is at its peak at the moment, even with the new president, um, which is quite sad to see that, you know, the country I was born in and I lived most of my life, um, the country that I wasn't even a citizen of. So even as a foreigner who's visiting her family and the posts that I made were not even when I was in Tanzania, I was in London. It was, they were made in May, 2020. And all it said was, you know, this is a fail of a president. COVID hand, like COVID-19 handling is not taken as seriously. That was pretty much it. Like, and, and, Obviously, going like the president is dumb for arresting um, somebody who laughed at him. A good description I heard of him was um, maybe he's like Trump without anything holding him back. Mm. There, there was nothing holding him back. There, there is no law stopping the police there. It's brutality at its best. It is the definition of police brutality when you look at how they would just pick up somebody from the street. You will see washed up bodies of journalists who don't agree with the president or at the time, um, people are scared of uh, publishing anything in the press. Um, the person who did write my article was coerced to release my personal details, including my passport number. Um, and a lot of the news um, never focused on me writing the posts about the president because he didn't want to get into trouble as well. So Mm. if you check out the local news, they talk about the passport. And I'm like, how come they didn't pick up the passport issue? Or they didn't ask me when I entered the country, are you a Tanzanian citizen? If you're not, you need to sign a paper and surrender your citizenship. Why did that not happen? My fingerprints haven't changed. Neither has my face. Maybe I grew a bit older, but... None of that made any sense. And the fact that if it was an immigration issue, why was cybercrime after me? It was a cybercrime unit that brought me in and they brought my brother in. If it was an immigration issue, they would have seen my application for a visa and known where I live. Um, I don't think anybody can be claiming it's an immigration issue when, you know, under questioning they the questioning was focused on your social media posts. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that that seems like whatever the issue was under which they brought you in, the fact that under police questioning, they were asking you to justify your social media posts. That's that's That seems like the crucial point here. I do want to hear a little bit from Nick as well. Sure. And I wonder if you could talk, Nick, about... Um, the organization Faithless, the Faithless Hijabi, 
um, how you first came to hear about it, why you decided to work for the organization, and uh, what you guys know. I know I could ask Sara this too, but um, be nice to hear from you. Sure, no worries. Um, might be worth kind of touching a little bit on my background. Um, so I grew up in a somewhat conservative Christian um, background. So I went to a Christian high school. My dad was a very conservative Christian. My mum, not so much. Um, I was quite uh, homophobic growing up. And, uh, you know, I start, you know, which I think is, I think actually people who leave Christianity have similar sort of experience to those who leave Islam. Obviously, it's not to anywhere near the same sort of severity or degree. And there's not the kind of consequences that there are with Islam. Um, but I kind of went the other way. I went a bit woke for a few years and I was to my everlasting shame. I, when there was the infamous spat between Sam Harris and Ben Affleck, I was on team Affleck at the time. And then not long after Charlie Hebdo happened and I was even in my kind of woke mindset, it was pretty clear to me who was in the wrong, um, the murderers. But then I saw people on my side, um, defending the murderers and attacking the cartoonists. And I just thought, what, what is going on here? And that made me kind of reconsider my whole position. And I realized that there is a pretty unique problem with Islam. And even though we want to have a solution that isn't going to stigmatize all Muslims, we do need to talk honestly about what's going on here. Um, so I kind of started following this space and realized that there's you know, a group like ex-Muslims who are uniquely at a very bad position at this point. Like, I think it's one of the big social justice causes of our time. Um, obviously, in countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran, they face the death penalty. But even in the West, um, we talk about anti-Muslim bigotry, which Muslims absolutely do face in the West. But imagine an ex-Muslim. They are in their, they're going to face that as well. But then they've also got to face, um, you know, bigotry from their own communities and ostracism and many of the things that Zara's talked about today. And that culminated in me meeting Zara at a conference with Armin Navabi and we stayed in touch. And I was quite honoured that Zara asked me to come on board as a secretary and we've been work together, working together um, ever since. Um, and the organization itself, I think it's because Zara did a really good job of identifying the fact that obviously there's, you know, there needs to be a lot of support for the plight of ex-Muslims, but something that isn't being thought about at the moment is mental health. Um, so you can imagine if you're a woman in, say, Saudi Arabia, and you decide that there is no God, and to say so publicly could have very negative consequences for your life, the the... There's really, you can only just imagine what kind of mental health strain that puts on a person. They're having to put forward a false persona every day. Um, they're having to lie to their family. Um, and I might tag in Zara here, but we could to maybe talk a little bit more about how we connect people with um, uh, therapists in the Middle East and around the world. Yes, please tell me more about your specific work with Faithless Hijabi, uh, Zara. Yeah, um, Faithless Hijabi started off um, very, very small initially. We wanted to, one, work lo locally in Australia and kind of raise the voices of ex-Muslims because when I did, you know, when I, before I even did my first podcast, I kind of made it very apparent that I did not believe in Islam through my Facebook posts. A lot of girls actually confided in me Um and they never, they'd never say their stories in public. And it was evident that they were scared. Not only did they bring shame to their family, according to the society, they were scared for their lives. Um, they, some of them came from abusive families. Some of them lived in a lot of the Middle East and a lot of them in the West. And we started off as, you know, trying to get more voices in Australia to speak up because there weren't many ex-Muslims organizations or well-known ex-Muslim organizations in Australia. 
And I was, you know, I'd ask everybody to submit their story and I'd anonymize their names. And we started off that way, getting some help from a lot of people because it was a lot of stories to manage, edit, translate sometimes and post on social media while having a full time job. But it came to a point that after like 100 or 200 stories, um, the stories kind of were all very, very related, different in some ways. There was a huge problem of honor, shame, guilt, hijab being one, even if it was called faithless hijabi. Um, a lot of the stories were all about women's agency, women's autom- autonomy, but also the right to be an apostate. And a lot of times I would not, you know, while while not being accredited to be a therapist, I would have people confide in me and tell me they were suicidal and how they were so scared of telling their families or they told their families and, you know, the families are taking them to, like, you know, to scholars and sheikhs and a lot of... Um, a lot of messy situations, but even a lot of women feeling so guilty accepting their disbelief, and men too. And that's when a friend of mine donated five hundred um, pounds, so you know British pounds. And I was like, "He's like, I know this money can go somewhere, and I really need you. Like, I really need to help. Like, I need to do something. When I read about these stories, I don't know what to do." And I was connected with um, a non sorry a clinic that was run by therapists who had gone to the British Faith to Faithless training on working with apostasy, and I asked them if they would like to partner up because we could afford them and we had a list of people and we don't have a lot of money, but at least four or five people would get help from that. And, you know, they agreed. And slowly we were trying to build up this program and build up um, a lot of uh, the restrictions that we had in terms of insurance and, you know, working with people in dangerous situations, uh, especially if they know they're in the, like, you know, they're going, they're around abuse or unsafe environments, but also um, covering them for working with, um, different um, nationalities as well. And then language became a problem because we knew women that could talk in English but not fluently and couldn't express themselves. And we started looking for an Arabic um, clinic and we found one in Lebanon. And just that way we started expanding our network of therapists willing to help, willing to go for that training. Um, And some of them happened to be ex-Muslims. Some of them happened to be Muslims as well who were quite liberal and wanted to help. And I have to say that has changed a lot of their perspectives on how they previously saw ex-Muslims as well and how... I guess, you know, their upbringing was quite different to others and some of their ideas are being challenged as well. But keeping things professional, they were able to do um, what their role was. And it was, it start, it slowly started spreading because we were having an established program where they get one-on-one therapy for eight sessions or sometimes um, increasing that. And I opened a crowdfunding page because I saw the program was taking off and we had interest and no money. Um, and people started donating and it was great. And it was really, it was such an accomplishment that, you know, we only started the mental health program in August 2020. So it's only been about 14 months now. And we've helped over 46 people and counting. Um, and it was it was just it was just overwhelming as as those requests came in. We started looking at what other organizations, so Humanist International being one um, that supported us in a small grant, and we're always looking for more donors because the work that we do and the feedback that we get from a lot of people. I know talking to um, one of the girls still stuck in the Middle East. She had given up all. I've known her for you know, since Rahaf Al-Kanun's case. And, you know, she had given up on trying to leave. She's like, I'm never going to go anywhere. Like, I'm stuck here. Like, this is it. Um, And, you know, after the program, she contacts me and she's like, I'm going to apply for scholarships. I'm going to apply for a job, but I am leaving. 
Like, I know my value. I know my worth. And this is not the end for me. And she had the willpower to live, to fight, to find her own independence. And we see that transition happen so many times. One of her cases was, um, for those who don't know, the Nigerian ex-Muslim activist Mubarak Bala currently still um, on blasphemy charges in Nigeria. You know, his wife was a very big advocate for our program and entered that program as well. And, you know, and is, is slowly working to figure out how to deal with such a traumatic situation. Um, so I'm really glad to be a part of people's life. In a way, I feel like I'm connected to many of the people who do come for the program and watching their journeys and seeing them be, even if it's just a little bit, positive in their life, helping them with any part of finding peace or, you know, reducing the amount of negativity that they have within themselves. A lot of times we have closeted ex-Muslims who are struggling to find peace or find happiness because they can't live their lives and they're hidden and they have this persona um, that they're religious, they pretend to pray, they pretend to fast, they pretend to be religious, but all they can think of is, this is not who I am and I have to be here. So helping them with all of this, I guess it just makes me feel so proud of all the therapists who've come together to make this happen and all the people who've donated. Yeah, I was just going to bring up, and even a few people that have gone through the program have now been able to go on and help others. So there's one woman we've helped in uh, Nigeria, Mariam, who I um, profiled in my piece on Medium. So she came from a fairly conservative Sunni community. Um, and, you know, the, obviously come, coming from that community, it was very, very hard on her mental health when she realised she didn't believe at the age of 14. But through the program, she was able to kind of find herself again. And now she's actually working to empower women in her own community over in Nigeria, in northeast Nigeria. And she's actually worked with some people... We'll put a link to that um, piece in the, into the show notes. Sure thing, um, yeah. But um, yeah, and she's uh, yeah, and she's even been able to help some people who have been victims of Boko Haram. Yeah, that's incredible. How do you um, how do you vet the um, therapists? They're, because there's always some danger involved when dealing with ex-Muslims, right? Uh, in countries where it um, there can be serious penalties for leaving Islam. The the therapists are UK based. Oh, Most, okay. Yeah, so okay. the therapists are UK based, except for one organization that um, was referred to us by other another humanist organization where they have worked with ex-Muslims who speak Arabic. So, and then just having interviews with them, um, having chats with them, um, like they're not they're not all Muslims. Um, in the Lebanon, because they're in Lebanon, so they're a mix of Christian, Muslims, atheists, um, and um, a lot of them come from referral from referrals. So we walk through the processes. Um, we have we refer to, we refer and pay for their um, apostasy training on faith to faithless when they hold it online now with COVID. And yeah, most of our therapists are based in the UK. Um, we don't actually have anyone local because, like you said, there is a lot of risk with somebody yes. who is local. Um, Both for them and for the clients. Absolutely. Um, mm. A lot of people who live in the Middle East would come and say that I do not, like, not even in the Middle East. This is in Australia. This is in Australia where people would say, I do not trust my therapist or the community therapist. Or if you're a refugee in Germany, the therapy they will provide you is the ones that speak Arabic. And they're like, I cannot trust them. I, I, I can't do that. So they would come through us, um, which, is, which is great. I'm glad that we can fill out that gap. Um, and even in the UK, like, sorry, even in Australia, we've had a few people who've, you know, worked around the time zone and um, made it work with therapists in the UK because, you know, they just don't think that there are a lot of therapists in Australia who would be able to navigate such a complex situation without feeling. I remember when I actually went for therapy and he was a Muslim therapist and, you know, I was talking about bad ideas, Islam being one, and the conversation slowly moved towards socialism and communism. And I was like, 
what? Like, I'm not even talking about that. I was like, what is this? I'm not paying $300 for you to talk about communism. And it was such a scary time because it was during Ramadan. And I was like, I do not agree with Muhammad. And this makes no sense to me how he can be such an awful person. And he literally went like touch wood. And I was so freaked out and I never went to him again. Um, Mm. And I realized how that can be such a conflict for people who've never worked with apostates. Um, Despite their professionalism, um, he had never worked with apostates and that was quite scary for me because it it my safe space was gone i couldn't talk to him anymore i can i can believe that so in a previous episode of this podcast i interviewed sadia hamid mm-hmm. and um she grew up in a in a very strict um muslim family in a very separatist community in the uk and uh, uh, the community policed their members very stringently, and there were there was really a network of of in unofficial spies everywhere. That was absolutely the kind of situation in which you could not trust a therapist. Um, she did not trust the social worker who the government provided because the social worker sided with her parents um, over her. As oh, her absolutely! Were, it happened in Australia. To, yeah, as her parents were trying to force her to go abroad into a, an arranged marriage. The further complicating element to that is also the, the lack of support that a lot of these people in these ultra-conservative communities get from the left. Uh, because I remember, Zara, when you and I met, the first question I asked you was, how much support have you had from the Australian left? And you said, absolutely none. Even when I was in Australia this time, after coming back from Tanzania, ABC News shut down my segment the moment I said I was an ex-Muslim activist. They shut it. And, and, you know, I had received threats for my posts from Muslims. They shut it down. They didn't talk about it. They kept the notion that Australian government didn't help. And that's it. And I'm like, you're completely taking away the narrative. This is the news that is meant to cover my view. And they interviewed me and then I get a message the next day. They're like, we're not going to air it, sorry. And I'm like, why? And they're like, they just didn't think that, you know, it was a valuable piece. That is extremely unfortunate. What do you think is the most important, um, the most important thing that people can do to uh, support ex-Muslims and to support people like you, Zara? Apart from, of course, going to check out the organization and we'll put links to links in the show notes for people. Um, but what is the most important thing that people should bear in mind? I think one of the, I've been thinking about this question quite a bit, especially with a lot of the political narratives taking over and making it into a left or a right thing. And I was thinking about how can other people support ex-Muslims um, by creating constructive discourse. And I feel one of the way is to actually question um, where we come from and what our views are and why they're made that way and what happens when we ignore the larger issue of indoctrination. So I know hijab being a very popular topic and I feel like it's a very polarized opinion where people are like, you know, hijab should be banned or no, hijab is great and it's a feminist tool. And I feel like there definitely is a middle ground where we can we don't have to celebrate the tool or the cloth that represents oppression for many women around the world, especially in Iran and, you know, right now in Afghanistan. But we can still talk about, you know, there are human beings who wear it. There are women who wear the hijab, who come from a very similar background, who for a very long time or even now would not believe that it was coerced onto them. and. I think we need to all of us Muslims, people of different faiths and no and no people from no faith to come and have this middle ground on how we can create constructive dialogue and how do we raise our voices for those who are being executed in Muslim majority countries and unsafe in a lot of these areas where they absolutely need our support but they're rarely heard. 
they're they're rarely talked about because I think for the most part, like even just being in Sweden, a lot of the people I talk to, they just don't want to offend anyone. So they never talk about it. And I feel like this is exactly where we need to talk about it and that we need to open dialogue and we need to have the difficult conversations in order for us to move forward because our silence only aids um, further intolerance. And also just not forget that, you know, when when we say we want to just, um, you know, oh, we want to respect different cultures and different beliefs, just maybe just stop and think that there's actual victims that are potentially being ignored in the name of cultural tolerance or, you know, wanting to respect other people's religions. Thank you very much. Thank you to both of you for joining me. Thanks for having us. No, thanks for having us, Ian. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.